Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up first... School is torched in Papua New Guinea as election violence escalates. It's really pleasing that, you know, all the milestones that we've got on a month-to-month basis, we're ahead of those numbers. Fiji tourism is booming again as visitor numbers soar, and later on in the show... So even the process for people to even get through to the door to go and get funding, it's really tough. Most just pretty much give up. Pacifica stars challenge Sport New Zealand about their funding models. Papua New Guinea police and electoral authorities are on the verge of declaring failed elections in some parts of the country where violence has all but halted the electoral process. In one electorate in Enga province on Friday, social media videos surfaced of a school and several other buildings and properties torched by angry voters after the theft of some ballot boxes. RNZ Pacific's correspondent in Papua New Guinea, Scott Waide, says the violent extremes reflect a wider public frustration in a poorly planned and managed election. He joins me now. Thank you, Thomas Wantok, for Sidan's story with me for more. Let's start with the incidents in Enga. Trouble started up towards the end of last week and just escalated going into the weekend. Tell us more about what happened there. Um, yes, so it started out with you know instances where ballot boxes were hijacked and uh, you know people tried to take ballot boxes away and have them uh, have their own votes put in, um, and that was primarily uh, the attention. Much of the attention was around the Enga province um, and and Tari uh, in Hela province. Um, so that has uh, escalated to a point where in Kompiam Ambum, uh, the electorate where the uh, so John Pondari is the incumbent. Um, so people have gone about. Uh, Expressed their frustrations through by burning um, a school and several buildings, burning vehicles, um, destroying ballot boxes. Um, that, as well as uh, Pogra, um, Pogra, the violence happened after the polling teams were withdrawn. So, this was clan rivalry that came into play. Uh, two clans just waited for polling to end, and then they they began the began fighting so it's it's uh i don't really know if it's election related or uh just tribal violence alone but it's it's a bit of a hot spot uh and has been for a long while um there are also instances uh or reports of uh company vehicles being burnt um at least one picture that i've seen uh in in pogra uh other incidences that Related to the burning of ballot boxes happened in Morbe, um, one in Makam where the polling station was attacked and ballot boxes uh, thrown about and the papers burnt. And also in Kabum where uh, there were reports of at least two people shot by police and the public re- responded by you know, burning ballot boxes and, and destroying the polling station. So that's come about as... Uh, the week has progressed. Have we heard from national leaders, uh, candidates, talking about some of these issues? Um, yeah, there was a statement by the Prime Minister, and, and that 
that statement has also been criticized by members of the public. You know, he's come out and condemned the violence, but, uh, you know, people have called him out for the the instances of double voting and uh, irregularities and uh, violence that's happened and also in Tari uh, and, and in Hela province. So they're, they're basically challenging him on that. Um, there's also been... Uh, a statement by the, the incumbent opposition leader, Belden Nama, calling for people to refrain from the violence and basically telling them that this is our democracy, we need to protect it, uh, and violence is not the way to go. Um, the, the latest uh, statement that's come out is from a very influential politician, the Inge governor, Peter Ipatas. Now, whatever Peter Ipatas says in Papua New Guinea, whether it's at the provincial level or at the national level, it always holds uh, a, a fair deal of weight because he's a very influential politician. Um, so he's come out and said, this is what I've been warning the parliament about, but nobody's really taken uh, taken heed of it. I've asked for foreign troops or at least an intervention force of some sort to be stationed in Enga to monitor the elections or at least provide some sense of uh, security. Uh, in in this period, in the election period, um, I I don't think when he raised it, I, I don't think people took uh, very much attention to it. Maybe they did, but uh, it, it wasn't something that the the government was prepared to do at the time. Um, the police commissioners released a statement also calling for uh, people, the instigators of the of trouble in Enga provinces, uh, in, in Enga province, uh, in the in the electorates in Enga province to stop the violence, or they, he will request for uh, the Electoral Commission to declare the um, elections null and void and then go for a by-election. So that's, if that happens, it's going to be a very, very expensive exercise for Papua New Guinea. How does this affect the the wider election? Is it is Are these incidents isolated to the areas where they're occurring and, and polling and counting elsewhere is just going ahead as normal or is it affecting the whole process yeah it's it's a I, I, it, it's a reflection of the frustrations of the people i mean they we had like a decade to fix it um and there's been really no political will to uh, rein in the electoral electoral, electoral commission and just instruct them to go out and fix the problems or adequately funding them to go out and fix the problems. Like uh, the census hasn't been done properly. The electoral rolls are still uh, faulty. Um, and this was flagged in the 2012 elections. This was flagged in the 2017 elections, even in the by-elections that, uh, by-election that happened in Port Mosby. So it was something that we knew was wrong, um, but there was absolutely no political will. I mean, from my perspective, there was no political will to get this thing fixed. And uh, in, in for, for some electorates, it's, it works to the advantage of the politician uh, to get elected in that manner. So it's been very frustrating for people who want to follow the law, who want to um, uh, have a fair election, fair, safe and free election, and to see that this is this has come about uh, is very frustrating. So uh, I think it's it's you know a, a reflection of seething problems that have been in existence for quite some time and left unaddressed. Tourism in Fiji is experiencing a net increase in visitor arrivals for the first time since the COVID pandemic. 
Over 205,000 tourists visited Fiji between January and June this year, overtaking last year's total of close to 147,000 travellers. Unlike most Pacific nations, Fiji's doors are wide open to tourists with little restrictions, and the US, Australia and New Zealand are certainly making the most of it. Elisha Foon spoke with Tourism Fiji Chief Executive Brent Hill. When you look at tourism, uh, it's, a, it's about 38% of our economy. So, you know, just having the borders open, having that, you know, flow of, of, of cash injection coming into the economy, getting people back into work and so on, it, it's, it's very, very significant. And, you know, that, that starts to then open up lots of other supporting industries. So we are seeing things like, you know, investment proposals and, and trade and so on really starting to sort of pick up as well. Absolutely. How many tourism industry workers have returned for employment? Yeah, look, at this stage, we, we would probably estimate that around um, at this stage now, probably we're closer to about 80% of our um, tourism workers, you know, back uh, being employed. And when you look at the direct and indirect, you know, tourism roles, it's estimated by uh, the Fijian government that that's around um, 150 to 180,000 workers. So, you know, it's really, really significant numbers. And as you can imagine, what that means is, you know, people getting back into into jobs means that they can then, um, you know, just start to do things like, you know, putting, uh, you know, food on the table, sending, um, you know, kids to school, starting to, you know, look at things like, you know, housing or cars or et cetera. So it has all that flow on effect and, and all of that had really stalled. So it is very, very significant, um, you know, just having those guys back into work. And, and I can tell you, you know, one of the things that the tourists, uh, know how important it is uh, for Fiji, and they really feel like they've, um, you know, contributed. And 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 the, the people that are back in work uh, are very uh, keen to share how grateful they are that you know they are back in work and grateful for the tourists to come here. It means a lot. Yeah, for sure. And which countries are bringing in the numbers, and where are visitors spending most of their time? Yeah, so at this stage, it's it's very much still Australia, New Zealand, and US doing the heavy lifting. That's about ninety three percent of the tourists that come into Fiji. Uh, and the the good thing is, what we're starting to see is people really travelling around the whole of Fiji, which is something I would really encourage. Is um, you know, since I've been here, I've been able to discover, you know, large parts of Fiji that I didn't really know much about, like Vanuulevu and Taviuni and some of these, you know, beautiful parts of, of Fiji. There's some amazing accommodation options there. So, yeah, certainly the Denarau, Marmanutha Islands, Coral Coast, um, those areas that you would expect to be busy are very, very busy um, because, you know, they're known by the Kiwis and the Australians and so on. But we are starting to see people that, you know, want to do a little bit more and want to explore and, and you know, have some adventures that are... That are um, really exploring the whole of Fiji, which is great. And what percentage of tourists are coming in that make up new bookings? Because the uh, Fijian government had heavily subsidised the industry to encourage them. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing that, that is probably the most exciting. We're, we're trying to really um, analyse the, the data as much as we possibly can um, to drill into that. But I, I would say... You know, it could be as you know, one third of the people that are coming to Fiji haven't been to Fiji before, um, and that's that's really exciting for us because I think you know they're having great experiences, you know, really safe experiences. They're discovering parts of Fiji they didn't know, um, and that's you know something that I'd love for my job is obviously we're trying to promote the depth of Fiji, and you know, hearing people say I just never knew that you know it had X Y Z. Is, is really exciting. You know, we, we've got things like, 
you know, the reef platforms and the beach clubs and whatever that are attracting younger tourists that potentially might have gone to, to Europe or something first that are coming to Fiji and, and been really surprised by, you know, how cool it is and how, how vibey it is. And then you've got families who, who may have gone somewhere else like Bali and so on that have chosen Fiji and saying, you know, how safe it is and how much, you know, how the facilities for, you know, children and, and teenagers and so on are really easy and simple. So, it's really pleasing from that perspective that we're getting so many people discover Fiji, that's for sure. Yeah, I think the, the key thing is, you know, we want to remain really competitive on, on pricing and, and we're seeing that, you know, that, you know, we're not getting ahead of ourselves and, and, you know, increasing the price. I think that, you know, that's still, um, there's still some really competitive offers. I think the other thing that we're really conscious of at Tourism Fiji is we're really showing the breadth of Fiji. You know, I think if somebody had only ever come to a, a resort in Denarau, um, we're trying to encourage that that public consumer. Well, hey, go out to an island. You know, then you can really see what Fiji is all about with those beautiful clear waters and snorkeling and so on. And also for you know for some Australians and Kiwis who really feel like they you know know Fiji, but they wanted to they wanted to do other adventurous type stuff. That we've got that kind of thing as well. Um, and we're actually seeing a real growth in that. We're seeing people coming over doing. Obviously, things like diving and snorkeling, but also things like, you know, trekking, you know, um, we've had people bring bikes over, uh, a lot of golf, obviously, people coming for golf, surfing's been huge. So I think that's how we're going to keep people coming, is really showing the breadth and depth of what Fiji's got to offer. Is there a target in mind for the end of the year? Yeah, so so not so much by the end of the year, but we've got a corporate plan uh, that by the end of 2024, we want to... Um, we want to target that three billion visitor economy, which is, you know, give or take a million tourists coming over a five period. If we get to that, um, that that exceeds the 2019 um, peak. So so that will be outstanding. But obviously, you know, there's a lot of work to get get to that level. It's really pleasing that you know all the milestones that we've got on a month to month basis, we're ahead of those numbers. So we're tracking very much in the right direction, which we're incredibly pleased about. But you know, in the current volatile world, I just don't think you can rest on your laurels. You know, like we've got things, like we never would have anticipated a war, um, you know, the inflation, the, the logistic issues that we've got, the price of fuel. There's lots of things like that, that that are in front of us. So, you know, we don't take any any anything for granted and we're very grateful for every tourist that comes. It's not just like, hey, yeah, we're ticking off the numbers. Pacific sports stars are teaming up with community members to challenge the funding model for Sport New Zealand. They say that the funding distribution method is inequitable and particularly disadvantages Pacific communities. The collective earlier this month presented their views on the matter to the Pacific Labour Caucus at Parliament. Susanna Suisuiki reports. Vaio Hawaiki is a collective of Auckland Pacific community sports groups and sporting legends including Laori Sir Michael Jones, Dame Valerie Adams, Ross Taylor and many others. Members of the group presented their concerns about sports funding to the Pacific Labour Caucus at Parliament. The chair of the collective, Caroline Matsumoa, has been involved in Auckland sports for 25 years. She believes a change in Sport New Zealand's funding processes is necessary. I'm still having to go to clubs to ask for boots, you know. And I've I've got clubs that have have got money, but uh, I've got talented Pacific Island kids that just, they can't come to training because they don't have boots or they have to a part-time job. Sport New Zealand is a crown entity responsible for governing sport and recreation in New Zealand.
Former All Black and collective member Peter Alatini says that the application process for funding would be difficult for anyone to navigate, and even more so for Pacific community people, who are mostly untrained volunteers. So even the process for people to even get through to the door to go and get funding, it, it's, it's really tough. And, and then most just pretty much give up. And then who, who misses out, again, out just how our, our, our kids and our generations come for. Former professional rugby league player who has represented both New Zealand and Tonga at an international level, Dwayne Mann, is also a collective member. Mann is keen to see changes in Sport New Zealand's policies, but also in the thinking of its decision makers. So funding is a key part, but it's all about the policies, the practice, um, the power dynamics and who, the mindsets of those holding, holding the decision making. He says Pacifica are invisible to the decision makers and not present at the decision making table. Vaio Hawaiki is also keen to develop a South Auckland Pacifica sports movement and cultural village. Dwayne Mann says the largest Pacific population in the world is in South Auckland. It's not about saying our local champions out there who provide um, play, movement, sport, physical activity to give up their home, but we need to have a visible home that looks, smells, tastes and feels like us. He says Pacifica continue to have poor health outcomes. Having such a Pacifica village space would benefit our communities and improve health outcomes. The voices of these legendary sports veterans are lending their experience and wisdom to the collective's challenge to the current funding model. They hope that government officials will listen and recognise the necessity for change. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you to Mas for her to come. Look at me for a lot next time more.